better equipped will take over his business. So this Bidask uh, arbitrage is a very important subset of the whole field of arbitrage. Very important, but uh, it's, in, it's important for us to keep this separate from the other times. So here we are. <coughs> Where did I start uh, talking about this business before I talked about it? what was my... Uh, um, you were talking about uh, the, uh, the speed of of getting to um well, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll just start the engine <laughs> crank up the engine okay. again okay so <coughs> Mises said that there was no market process involved in the formation of the interest and we say that this is wrong because it is the result of market making. In fact, it's the bond market. So you have to have, you have to go back to Menger. It's thanks to Menger and his introduction of the Vidas spread. Now that's right. the Vidas spread that we have now two rates to study not just one, as the equilibrium school would suggest. You have two rates, the ceiling and the floor. And when you dig in, as we did the previous hour, we find that the floor of the rate of interest is uh, the outcome of uh, the uh, activities and arbitrage activity of the marginal bond holder. And this is the time preference because he is art doing arbitrage between present goods and future goods. Now there are lots of these, so it has to be crystallized, has to appear in a in a very purified form and when you do arbitrage between present goods and future goods which is as we all know a very important type of arbitrage because uh, all production activities will involve that the, the thing is that all production takes time. There's no some such thing that there is something primitive and you wave the magic wand and turn it into a gold cup or whatever. Because with the time and other ingredients coming into it, proper work and expense, you have 
the outcome of the production. So, this aspect, namely arbitrage between present and future good, bringing about the floor for the range in which the interest rate varies. You see, this is what the time preference school does. But that's only half a loaf. If you want the full loaf, sorry, about that, we have to contradict Mises. To get the other half of the law, we would have to consider another arbitrage. And that other arbitrage is between the gold bond market and the, we call it stock market, but I don't go through it again, I explained that. Uh, what it is, how it follows the rise and fall of the rate of interest. Okay? So, very similar in structure, but in, in substance, in the content, is very different. So, in order to understand interest, you've got to study two different processes. They are both market processes, arbitrage. And one will determine the ceiling, and the other will determine the floor. And only in possession of the two will you have a complete theory. And again, you can go back to bid and ask arbitrage. There are market specialists who make it their business to close initially wide, initially very wide spread between the ceiling and the floor, but their activity will result in a rather narrow spread. And that makes the impression that it's one single interest rate which guides the destiny of the economy because the spread is very narrow. But still there are these two interest rates, ceiling and the floor. Okay, let's ask um, so, uh, yep. In all this arbitrage, which we understand clearly, how does the modern nanosecond high frequency trading affect or deflect completely a market price? Um, I don't know whether you're aware, Professor, but there's a, there's a, there are a lot of computer programs that sort of flick nanosecond trades at the market to test it. Um, so how would you think that would influence the way a market would um, 
naturally arrange itself. This is already working. This is all, this is what's happening currently. Yeah. Well, I must I must say that's a very good question, but I haven't given special thought to it. So I, I don't feel like giving a flippant answer. But if you want to express your opinion. Um. I, I, I can't say I've given much thought to it, but it won't be, um, less, I, I can't imagine it being beneficial to the market process. Um, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so we don't think you suggest it should be outlawed? Um, I don't know whether one can sort of say you should outlaw it, because there's nothing that says you, you can't do this kind of thing. But as to as to whether it contributes to the efficiency of the market process, well, obviously, that is, that is, there's a question mark over that. Um, Keith? If I can just interject, this is something I have thought about, and I'm thinking of writing a paper on this. Fundamentally, there's two things that are going on with high-frequency trading. One is the market making at a faster rate, which would mean more efficient, better communications, faster communications. <coughs> and the other is this probing. There's a lot of bids that are sent in and canceled, and a lot of offers that are sent in and canceled. I think that's actually regulatory arbitrage. The regulators have fixed, you know, in an attempt the way they always think of everything as static and linear. Uh, they, they have given the New York Stock Exchange, for an example, sort of a monopoly on running an exchange. And so there are all these other electronic liquidity exchanges that connect to the New York Stock Exchange. And there's a latency arbitrage going on because some quote of services are faster than others. And if the price is moving down and you can you can buy it here and sell it or somebody is stale and they'll actually take the, the offer, uh, you can make money. There's no uh, solution to that other than to deregulate it and let the engineers who understand latency rather than the regulators that understand political interests um, actually solve the problem. Well, uh, I, I think... Sandy? No, go ahead. Yeah. I'm going to comment on that. When, as far as I understand the story of Rothschild, when he got the message in, he said, sell British stocks. Now, obviously, if, if Napoleon had won, that was the call. So everybody panicked and started to sell, and then he started to buy. So first he, missed, first he got the information, then he misled all the others, and then he cleaned up. Well, that's what these guys are doing. Yeah. Pretend to sell, yeah. to push the price down, but we're really buying. So it's, you know, from a couple of hours of Napoleon time, now it's down to people. No, it's not a matter of really sub millisecond. It is speed faster than the human brain. Oh, yeah. But it's human programming playing out. Yeah. To, to put this in perspective, the speeds of this. Of course, Chicago and New York have been connected through various networks for 50 years or 100 years. Um, one, one or a couple of firms paid to bring in a direct fiber optic. So signals travel faster in fiber optics as the speed of light. Electricity runs at about a third the speed of light. And the bonus is from the exchange. And they, and they went directly from the Chicago exchange to the Newark exchange, and they were willing to go through mountains and drill and put a conduit. And they saved something like 10 milliseconds and do it at, at you know, hundreds of millions of cost to save 10 milliseconds. I, to me, it's just fascinating. Oh. Okay, just one thought. I, 
I just add a thought which I, I think in theory this makes markets more efficient. It probably does. Yeah. But uh, this whole uh, this whole cost is actually obviously hideous. It shouldn't make sense. And I think this is only happening because uh, as a result of extraordinary low interest rates. Because these low interest rates yeah. make it possible to 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 do the leverage and, and lever this up this far that it uh, makes sense in the first place. You need giant leverage, which wouldn't be here in the first place if you would have a normal rate of interest, which would be determined by the market, is that but not by some great beard man. So, thank you. That's my thought. Thank you very much. Um, Keith, do you mean that uh, this type of shortening the reaction time. I don't know what's the official name. Late latency. Well, latency is, is the technical term for when something happens over here, but before the information comes to here, that spread, that time spread, is called latency. Okay. So. Uh, and, and this type of trading, when you almost intensify, it is high frequency. Hmm? High frequency trading. High, oh yeah, that's right. No, I remember. High frequency trading. Is it your view, Keith, that it's it's uh, uh, not beneficial? It has its negative aspect. The essence of it is increasing efficiency and decreasing communication speed. The downsides are one, as Mark just brought up, it's only possible and only profitable because of dirt cheap credit coming from the Fed. And also, this high speed fiber optic line that they put in between New York and Chicago cost hundreds of millions of dollars, probably would not make any sense at 8% interest. But at 0% interest, it, it's so, so that represents a capital waste. The other part of my theory is that the reason why there is so much latency to be arbitraged is because the official exchange is so controlled by regulation. The engineers have figured out that computers are now today probably a million times faster than when the New York Stock Exchange regulations were created. And the speed of communications are probably 10 million times faster. And the latency is the actual time for information to go from here to here is down. But because the regulations have bound everything up, there's friction, there's sand in the gears. There's all these other dark pools and liquidity pools and electronic islands and all these things. And then between them, they have lower latencies. So if you can see a bid on this exchange that's higher than the offer on this exchange, because they are spread three milliseconds apart, <laughs> There's free money to be had arbitraging them, but the only reason why there's three milliseconds of latency in my theory is because the regulators, rather than the engineers, are controlling the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ and the computer systems that, that run it. Okay. Now, I don't know that what I'm going to say is, is uh, confirming this or contradicts that, but a thought occurred to me, which might be worth considering this. I find an analogy between this problem and the problem of 
fighting uh, burglars by using burglar alarms. <laughs> because the burglars are ahead in the game, they invented a new type of tool to disable the security system in your house. But then, of course, you don't stand by and allow the burglars to run away, because you will improve your burglar alarm by introducing intricate codes or whatever. And then the burglars get wise that there is a new generation of burglar alarms available. And of course, they buy one and take it apart, study it, and then they improve on their system of burglary, burglarizing their house. And this is a kind of playing catch-up, you know, between the burglars and everybody else. And uh, it, I guess, theoretically goes on forever. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if this is a valid uh, comparison or analogy, but it just occurred to me during the uh, discussion that on, on, one, on the one hand, you would feel reluctant to dismiss something which is uh, improving efficiency. But on the other hand, you see that if only one or two people have this tool and nobody else, then it becomes unfair. So whether, and, and, and some of the small investors have a problem, they could never hope to match the very sophisticated uh, computers which are needed to do that type of uh, trading, what type of trading? High, high frequency. High frequency trading. You know, I mean, we are getting into a very expensive game here. But of course, the small investors could form unions of their own. And the union would hire them. So, you know, um, I, I, uh, it's pure speculation. We are at the very beginning of this. We haven't seen half of it yet, because this is something very new. And uh, we'll see how it will develop. I'm very speculative. I don't think it's, uh, uh, we are at the stage where we could develop a theory. We could make guesses, but not much more. All right, now, uh, one more thought about Mises. And time preference. See, Mises says that time preference is universal. Everybody here has a time preference, and then we compare notes and we discover that your time preference is exactly the same as mine, as his, and so on. You know, I mean, that's how Mises describes it. Mises does not suggest that perhaps there are uh, <coughs> Scrooges and there are prodigal sons. And the time preference 
of Scrooge is very, very high, and the time preference of the prodigal son is practically zero. And there is a whole spectrum of other time preferences in between, and you can rank people. This is very alien from the time preference Mises is talking about. That, that I think he says just one sentence and that's it. So one sentence goes something like this. Uh, as time goes, time preference equalizes. And as a result, it's uniform. Well, I don't see that, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I see that <laughs> Scrooge remains <laughs> Scrooge and cannot turn him into a prodigal son and vice versa. But anyhow, I think you need a theory which allows for different time preferences. So what we have is surveying the people and ranking them in order of time preference. And then there will be, will, uh, will appear a marginal bondholder whose time preference is just at this, at this margin. So rather than saying time preference period, say marginal time preference, which is the time preference of the marginal bondholder. The marginal bondholder is doing, uh, as all other participants in the bond market, are doing arbitrage between present goods and future goods. So as, a, as an outcome of this arbitrage appears a number. And this number is the flow of the uh, of the range of interest rates at which bonds change hands. And this is the outcome of a market market process and And that's why we have to say marginal time preference rather than simply time preference. All right, now I want to wind up this by emphasizing once more the importance of this. And I, I must confess I feel very, very strongly about this. That thanks to Menger, we discovered that there are really two interest rates which you have to study. And there might be similarities, but basically it's studying two different setups, different economic situations, different theaters, and so on. And as a result of these two studies, you come up with the ceiling and the floor of the rate of interest.
So we have a synthesis, a synthesis which combines all the advantages of both theories because we cannot deny that the time preference theory is very revealing and brings a lot of uh, good ideas which we don't want to throw out. But the same can be said of the productivity theory. It has lots of very fertile ideas which we don't want to throw, throw out. So the solution to the problem is not that one is victorious at the expense of the other or vice versa, but then we are looking at a higher order synthesis of the two theories and bring all the good things from both sides together. And I think that's the kind of interest rate theory we want. And that's, but I'm not suggesting that it has been done. I'm just suggesting the way to go. And unless you look for this synthesis, you are not likely to be successful. You've got to have a synthesis. These are the two elements, time preference and productivity, in particular marginal productivity and marginal time preference. You bring these together, plus the market maker who will make sure that the spread is narrow enough, and then you have a, a working here of interest. <coughs> so in a way, this is the purpose of our course. I want you all to go away at the end of the course with this clear idea that we are trying to find the synthesis. And I think we are on a very good track to this. Any, any, any further questions, Mark? A short question on the protagonists of this uh, discourse, of this academic discourse. You mentioned Mises on the one hand, to tending towards this um, time preference theory and other productivity. Well, there are many others. Mises is a conspicuous one. And of course, he is an Austrian, but there are non-Austrian time preference theorists okay. as well. The, the, these fields overlap. Okay. And then the productivity theory of interest, who uh, you mentioned just one or two names? Who, who, uh, uh, one name which comes to mind is a German by the name of Russia. R-O-S-S-C-H-E-R. And there might be several others. Oh, yeah, I was going to tell you that Mises fell out with his good friend or teacher, Ben Barber, over that issue. Because once they started discussing interest, originally Ben Barber was inclined to say, okay, I belong to the time preference school. 
and everything was good. Mises and Bernbauer were on very good terms. And then Bernbauer started to publish paper or two in which he brought in ideas from the productivity theory. Oh, that started a very bitter debate and even name calling. So I just found that interesting. That Bern Bauer in later life came to see the light. That's not a full explanation. There is something else. There is the productivity. But uh, read Bern Bauer. There is a, a pretty good and that's not the end, of course, Bernbauer died a long time ago, and the, the debate is still continuing, and there are uh, living economists who are taking the two sides. And uh, uh, Israel Kisner is one reference where you can find a, a complete bibliography of the more recent part of the we've got the coffee break now coffee yeah so uh, we'll come back in 15 minutes for more questions um, so thanks professor